0: Hello everyone, how you doing? Welcome to the latest episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. And today, you're listening to a conversation between me and Scott Haber. As you'll hear at the beginning of the episode, it's quite difficult to describe what Scott does and who he is, and that's why I ask him to do that for me. But I'm going to have a go just by way of a quick introduction before we jump into the conversation. Scott Haber began as a bioengineering student, but transitioned into nature-based mindfulness practice after learning from a woman who was practicing traditional Andean ways. Scott then received the Bonderman Fellowship, which funded and facilitated him to visit and travel to traditional nature-based cultures around the world and to learn from them. Scott now undertakes a unique blend of shared interests, which include writing, making films, doing photography and also leading nature-based mindfulness classes and courses and he's an acquaintance of Claire Thompson who I've previously published an episode of this podcast with on a similar topic. Scott's also practicing environmental advocacy, he and I are doing some work together and he's also helping the Shuar community in Ecuador to protect their land from petrochemical developments and exploitation. You can find Scott at his website, that's www.scotthaber.com, that's S-C-O-T-T-H-A-B-E-R. And you can find out even more about him and links to some of his other work on the About page of his website, which is scotthaber.com forward slash about hyphen me. The Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature, just like Scott You can find us at our website, which is wildvoicesproject.org, or follow us on Twitter at wildvoicesproj, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or on Stitcher. Without any further ado, I think let's dive in to this latest episode. I don't quite know. I don't quite know how to describe you. Do you maybe want to describe what it is you do and who you are to kick off with?
1: Certainly. You know what I do and who I am. They're in many ways overlapping. Um, I guess I'll start chronologically. You know, I studied cell molecular biology and biomedical engineering at the University of Michigan, and there I was exposed to Contemplative practice in the form of a mindfulness practice, a seated meditation, nature-based mindfulness, spiritual ecology from a lady who was studying with the traditional Quechua culture uh, in the Andes, and she was teaching University of Michigan courses. I was an entrepreneur and still doing this biomedical engineering master's degree. When I finished my degree, I was given a fellowship to travel to non-Western countries and immerse in different worldviews, with the only responsibility. Being to write about my perspective. This was in 2016. And I applied hoping to further see how traditional nature based cultures lived with the natural world, what can be learned from that way of life, and how a more what I would call nature based or spiritual understanding can blend with a Western scientific framework. That has kind of led me to a path of unique and what would seem different, but still shared interests so i do a lot of different things i primarily write i'm writing for right now summit which is a global collective organizing the world's most influential change leaders i act as their in-house editorial producer and journalist i work on my own literature and writing for essay companies as well i do some nature advocacy you know i'm helping a little you i'm helping Uh, Ecuadorian Shuar community, um, retain their land from a petroleum company and get funding for an alternative tourism proposal. I teach mindfulness and nature-based mindfulness. And then there's a whole other, you know, litany of projects, which I'd all put that under my interest of how the relationship between humans and the natural world and how that affects health of people and health of planet, and hopefully furthering the creation and emergence of new systems and stories which are more life-promoting, life-enhancing than life-destroying and destructing.
0: Neat, thanks. I'm glad you did that because I was you cover such a range of incredible things that I was having trouble, through my reading and my research, kind of formulating a neat um, introduction or description of Scott in either in writing or in my head. So thank mm-hmm. you for doing that. Um, I guess I want to go... You've already raised a few questions that I want to ask you, but I want to go back, I suppose, a little bit. What led you to study, um, I can't remember exactly what you said your course was, but biomedical engineering or biology at university? Where did your interest in biology and perhaps in the environment or in nature first start? Was that much earlier? And why did you come to that choice of university course?
1: So the biomedical engineering was separate from and even though my undergrad degree was in some like your biology, that impetus had no source or motivation to study nature, ecology, or biology. That impetus arose from having proficiency in science and business and equating proficiency with um, with love for something because I didn't know what I actually loved and liked to do. And after working on ambulances and feeling a bit jaded, you know, working ambulances in Israel and giving CPR, wanting to create better tools for healthcare providers. Now that led me to several entrepreneurial projects, um, doing prerequisites in engineering to apply to a master's in a program in cell molecular biology and biomedical engineering. And I was drowning in stress and anxiety and pressure that I was really imposing on myself. And all that led me to a good friend whose demeanor changed a little, and he just seemed to have this calmness and equanimity in the face of whatever he was facing. And everyone's like, what's Ryan on? You know, what's Ryan taking these days? And Ryan told us about a meditation course offered through the University of Michigan. And really, I just took it because all my friends were, and it was an easy A, and we heard you could nap outside if you were into that kind of thing. And so I came in this class, and honestly, initially, I really hated it. I was so uncomfortable. I remarked on how anxious of an experience it was and i grew to see that there was nothing inherent to the external experience that was uncomfortable the what was the uncomfort what what was what i was feeling internally and what i was how i was able to see that when everything else fell away and so i got deeper into those classes and really it's about not just meditation and mindfulness but learning to be outside in silence and solitude learning to connect to you know what david abram calls the more than human worlds and finding your own voice through those practices and the more i practiced that the more i spent time outdoors something just felt right and good about that and that kind of led me down this path of traveling and inquiring more on how nature relates to psychology and how our connection to nature relates to the impetus we have to sustain it
0: and do you remember the first or or maybe one of the first of those um meditation classes that you took and the the kind of specific the specific practices and techniques that you were introduced to but also the the initial feelings that you had
1: certainly yeah it's it's a good story (laughs) so My friends and I on the first class, it was in September of 2013, we walked in all together. We walked in late and we were like 12 minutes late after Michigan time. So the University of Michigan used to let you, it was standard norm that you show up 10 minutes after class and that's when class starts. We showed up 22 minutes after and everybody's sitting in a circle, you know, on these cushions on a blue carpet. I'm like, oh, my God, everyone's looking at us. I have to break the circle. No, now I have to sit next to the teacher. And do I look at her or do I look forward at the ground in front of me or do I look at the ground in front of her? Because she's talking the whole time, but I have to cock my neck. And now I have to go to the bathroom, but I already broke the circle once. And now she's asking us to sit in silence and monitor our breath. And my nose is dripping. And now we're walking outside in silence, but I don't like all this silence. And so it was kind of this wild... (laughs) two hours that felt like 12 to me.
0: Um, and this, was this the same woman who you referred to earlier, who who sort of um, became a bit of a mentor for you and who you learned a lot from, or was that someone else?
1: Certainly. She is like a motherly figure to me in many ways. You know, Martha, her name is Martha. You can find her work at natureandhealing.org. She did her PhD in English at the University of Michigan, and was teaching writing here, and was teaching meditation at the time, and they dismissed her. Went and studied in Ecuador with the traditional culture, or what I would call traditional, and she met the founder of the creativity and consciousness program at University of Michigan, who also is one of the leaders of the jazz program. And they were starting courses to help students quiet the mind, musicians at the time quiet the mind so they could improvise and connect to flow better they invited Martha back to teach those courses and came to see that hey these are courses that should be offered to all students and not just musicians so yeah she's been a mentor a motherly figure to me she's really served as just a, a consistent point of wisdom and someone who I can talk to about whatever across the past six five years for me
0: so that, that relationship began with the meditation classes, but what form did the evolution of that relationship take? Did you go and visit her in Ecuador? What, what practices or philosophies was she teaching you about? You know, where did that go beyond the initial meditation classes?
1: So she's located in Michigan and she, I don't think she's been back to Ecuador for a bit, but I ended up taking 11 courses with her. So that's where, there were, I don't think I made that clear. That's where the relationship really loomed. Um, and I think it's not just me. A lot of students who are earnest about her class see that she's there just for them and to help them access their voice and a better sense of being. And she gets close with many students. And so I took 11 courses with her on intro to contemplative practice, um, deep spiritual ecology, nature-based mindfulness, shamanism, finding your way. And so we were learning a lot about um, plant medicine, yes, not taking plant medicine, but different cultural views and cosmologies on it. We were learning uh, some on Andean culture's view and cosmology. We were learning on mindfulness and meditation and reading from Thich Nhat Hanh. We were learning about contemplative writing and free stream journaling, we were learning about mindful walking. We were having a lot of group discourse and conversation, which I think is the most fruitful part, where you have all these students who come together from such different backgrounds, maybe socioeconomic backgrounds, forms of study, race, ethnicity, and they're just sharing not about coursework, but about their life, about how they're approaching things, about how they're seeing things. And you come to see wow, all these people who on the surface feel so different share such similar things and we all have such to learn from each other from just being there and showing up and conversing so the the course was about all these subjects but it was really guided by where the students wanted to take it
0: are there any particular moments uh, from the course where that you felt were really important moments of learning and i suppose i'd be particularly interested in any in any of those that took place in the outdoors
1: mm. I mean, the first thing that really comes up is it happened in the outdoors, but not the outdoors (laughs) that we would, you know, that we would typically think when we say outdoors was I had a brain injury um, December 31st, 2014. It was outside, actually. And I got into a really foolish, foolish um, physical confrontation. It was I really don't drink much, but it was New Year's and it was one of those nights and I was tackled and my head broke the fall on concrete. And that led to a traumatic brain injury, an epidural hematoma, a skull fracture of my temporal bone, uh concussion, staples, a contusion of the brain, I believe. Um, and so that was kind of my moment where actually the next few days and weeks weren't so much traumatic, but were in ways enlightening for me to see how actually to feel the preciousness and The value in each and every moment and to realize I needed to start aligning my way in that sense more often to live that way more often to feel that way more organically without a brain injury. And so then after is when I really sincerely started practicing on my own each day mindfulness yoga and spending tons of time outdoors.
0: So sorry, chronologically, where whereabouts does that sit in the in the course of what you've described so far? Was that after you'd met Martha? Was that during your your teachings with her?
1: Yes, that was about a year and a half after my first class where, you know, the things she was saying were starting to hit home. And I'm like, this is still kind of weird. I don't know about all this stuff. I'm not experiencing it, but I feel better after class and that feels important. So that was a year and a half after I met her supposed to be the semester before finishing my undergrad studies which is a whole other story of how my undergrad stories got delayed and led me to be able to do the fellowship I did.
0: Yeah so I, want, uh, I wanted to ask about that as well so perhaps maybe you can briefly say what biomedical engineering is and what molecular biology is but what what's the difference in your own words between the view of our environment or nature or biology that, that those studies take and the view or the, the perspective that you are learning from your classes with Martha?
1: That's a great question. I think in molecular biology is kind of the epitome of, I don't want to say the other perspective because I'm not sure that polarity is as real as I would make it, but I will say it for Now, now molecular biology is much more materialistic when I say materialistic I don't mean new cars you know fancy clothes materialistic that we can reduce all phenomena in the world to some physical material that consciousness might be voltage differential in the brain that anxiety is because this chemical imbalance led to this protein manipulation led to this downstream effect so that's and they project that same view onto nature that you know, pollinator led to this, led to this, led to this. Or you can kind of look at what happened with um, palm oils that, oh, we need new renewables or better biofuel. And so let's just insert palm trees and palm oil everywhere without looking at native interactions and without understanding things are much more complicated than just the physical. And so it's a very Um, black and white approach to things, which is a necessary view of the world in my perspective, but alone is not sufficient. And so I think what one comes to see, and what these, what one comes to see when they've spent a lot of time outdoors, and what these cultures say in different ways because their lives are, are or have been intimately connected with the outdoors is. The natural world is this complicated, always evolving, at times unquantifiable life. That there's this thing called like carbon credits and ecosystem services, but to put, to think that we can put a value metric on all the, the, the value that nature provides, you know, whether the tree is providing home to flora and fauna, whether it's stabilizing topsoil, whether it's sequestering CO2, you come to see there's indif- in- infinite value metrics that are not possibly quantifiable. And it's this, this complex system that it, in itself is anti-fragile, that is self-resilient and self-organizing. And I think what a lot of molecular biology and biomedical engineering does to some degree a benefit is reduce it to more complicated or simple terms where I think that can be problematic, especially when we're talking about conservation or preservation. And then you can go into differences between, you know, looking at things as community or looking at things as kind of these webs of life and just different life forms and strands and um, species are strands in a web of life. Versus the view that we're all separate, but that would get us into a whole other conversation.
0: <laughs> well, there's, a, there's a lot of threads to explore in this conversation. What you said that, um, you didn't mean materialistic in the sense of consumption, but actually what are the connections between that, that biological view of, of nature and the mainstream view as Western cultures or societies that we tend to have? Of nature and our relationship with it and what are some of the consequences for our environment of that relationship we have with it
1: so the you're asking the connection between kind of the way we've come to the biological perspective and maybe how that scales to how we live our life yeah okay yeah i think that Part of the biological perspective, and this is going to be a, a little um, edgy to work into, mm. is evolution. And I think evolution, and these thoughts aren't mine. I'm borrowing them from a brilliant philosopher, Daniel Schmachtenberger, and I'm sure he borrowed them from somewhere else. But you know, part of it is that we are in constant competition with the world, and the best competitor survives. Locally true, but not globally true. You know, Darwin was able to see finches. And big fights, but we don't see all the net neutral or cooperative interactions, which really are the foundation and part of the world in the majority. And so I think we've taken part of that mindset that we said, well, we are just self interest maximizers. That's what economic theory says that we are just, you know, separate selves seeking to maximize self interest. And so we live these lives where what is more for me is less for you, or what is more for you is less for me. And the more I have for me, the better I am. The more differential advantage I have over you, whether in material or in money, the more quote unquote successful I am, the better I've done. And that's all this cultural view of what success and better means. And unfortunately, that mindset, why one don't think promotes well-being, it's not, it's not feasible you know, infinitely on a finite playing field. The natural world isn't infinite. It's finite. um, And when we're kind of driven to uh, acquire more because we're told that we're not enough and we're told that we need the new car or we need the new iPhone, even though the last iPhone worked perfectly well and it's just an incremental increase in technology or the new sweater is better, even though our last sweater really is working great for us. And when we're like constantly told we need new things and that we're inadequate and that the definition of success and value is to have all these things, then it becomes embedded as a truth within us. And so our actions start to come from that perspective because actions obviously arise from perspective where we're seeking to, you know, endlessly buy and buy and consume But unfortunately, the natural world isn't endless and all products are derived from nature. Everything is nature, you know. Even the metal table that my laptop is sitting on, even though it doesn't feel quote unquote natural, there was no synthetic or material that just came out of nowhere that we synthesized that didn't come from nature to make me this table. You know, all of its components when you break it down come from an element of nature. So I think this whole mindset of consume more, this is what success and this is what value is. Unfortunately, leads to uh, creating leads to a thinning, a thinning natural world.
0: So, you're, is it fair to say that we've taken taken that fairly narrow view of nature, that view of evolution as competition, and we've extrapolated that to be the basis of our entire, at least in many Western countries, our entire economic model and the entirety of our relationship with nature and that's simply unsustainable because in fact it excludes a whole big chunk of our relationship with nature which which would bring us more in balance with both ourselves and with the natural world which is to do with cooperativeness and connectedness
1: certainly certainly and you know you wonder i can think in my own life when i have this longing to purchase something that i don't need It's often not because that it often comes from a wound of feeling unfulfilled and seeking for it in an external place. And so you'd wonder, well, if people felt more fulfilled and more connected and in a more cooperative setting and not competing, how would that diminish their desire to acquire external things? And can we enable people and allow them to feel that way in the natural world? I think that we're hardwired to need nature. It's part of life and it's part of our belonging and we've moved away from it a little so it might be more challenging but it's possible for all individuals
0: i want to come back to some of these themes but i do i do want to give you the space to talk about the fellowship that you undertook in your travels and maybe to explore a little bit more that story that you alluded to a moment ago of how you ended up um doing that fellowship and what you then what you then did through it so do you maybe want to start just with what the and correct me if I'm wrong it's the Bonderman fellowship is and how you came to it
1: yeah sure so the Bonderman fellowship is a benefactor of David Bonderman he is a billionaire philanthropist and before he went to Harvard grad school he went to Washington University out in Washington, <laughs> and. He uh, traveled alone to non-Western regions, I believe, or regions that were different from a Western worldview, and spontaneously, and just said that really formed a lot of his worldview and perspective in life, and wanted to afford other students the opportunity to do such. And so they started at University of Washington, which is the only other school that has this fellowship in the world. And luckily, his kids went to University of Michigan. And so they started it as well at University of Michigan, where at University of Michigan, four graduating students, it's been, I think this is year five or six now, get chosen to receive $20,000 to go to anywhere in the world that is not United States, Canada, Western Europe, New Zealand, Australia, or a high risk country as imposed by UMISH travel re- regulations. And they have to go to at least six regions six countries in two distinct regions, and they're not supposed to work, they're not supposed to volunteer or have a certain project or goal, rather to just immerse in different countries and worldviews, not even to be with, they can't even be with people who they've previously known for longer than 10 days, but to only immerse in different worldviews and countries and write ever so often about whatever they desire on a blog. That is the whole fellowship. I came to it I knew that I would travel when I finished school. I didn't really know how, when, where, or even why, you know, the first why was meeting a girl from Amsterdam in Aruba and feeling she was very different than people that I had gotten accustomed to, not in a good or bad way, but just different and wanting, knowing that I needed to experience a broader stroke of humanity. and. I still wasn't sure how I was going to do it. I was really torn between these biomedical engineering jobs I was getting offered and this product my team and I were building that was that won a national award, a medical device. But I was also teaching mindfulness and meditation and helping lead a student wellness collective and spending time outdoors. And something about that, though uncertain, just felt right. It's not a feeling I can explain, really, because I think we all have different experiences of that. But it just felt more like me. And I was really torn. I remember going to these job interviews and, you know, I'm not one who often has these crazy prophetic dreams, but having dreams on both job interviews, like, you know, either a nightmare or telling me not to do it. And I heard of this fellowship called the Bonderman Fellowship. And immediately when I heard of it, it was like mid-January and the application was due in late January. I was like, wow, this this sounds exactly like it. This sounds like the next step. And... I went to them, you know, on cloud nine, I'm Scott Haber, I'm going to do this fellowship. By the way, I know this is only for undergraduate students, but I am in a dual program doing my both my undergraduate and master's degree. I finished the undergraduate portion last year, but I'd I'd still be eligible, right? And they're like, no, you're not. We're really sorry. So I walked out heartbroken and And the realization kicked into me at that moment, literally only in that moment when I walked out and was thinking, wait, why am I not eligible? Oh, wow. I had never received an undergrad degree, even though I was a graduate student. I'm like, wait, why have I not received my bachelor's degree? I was like, oh, my God, because that brain injury you had last semester, you waited to take one course because you didn't want to do molecular physiology, bioprocess engineering, an upper level lab. Uh, all at the same time. And you were still kind of slurring your words in calculus four as well. I think it was, you were still slurring your words and you were two days out of the neuro ICU in class. And so you waited to take one course until your graduate year without even realizing that was your last undergraduate course. And right now you are still, an, you are both a graduate and undergraduate student. And you're going to finish both degrees at the same time. I'm like, oh my God. And so I ran to them, I ran back. you know, they told me the story, because I think I forgot about running back <laughs> and the high of it. know they told me the story when I was speaking to prospective applicants a few months ago, because I couldn't figure out when I figured it out actually, and they're like, "You ran back 15 minutes later, you're like, "Oh my God, I'm still so an undergrad student, like, can I still do this?" And they kind of huddled up in the corner, and they called someone, and they're like, "Yeah, you know, you're welcome to apply." And so for the next two weeks, I shut down all my other coursework and just talk to everybody about the fellowship and redrafted these essays a million times and had my sister help me write it because I was such a terrible writer at that point in time. And that's kind of my path to it.
0: So, um, let's so, see. Hmm. Okay. I'm not quite sure where to go next. So I was going to ask, what did you have to provide by way of an application? So it was a series of essays on, on what, what the fellowship, well, what, what was the application process?
1: So I commend them not only for offering such an amazing fellowship and wherever you are, David Bondman, I think it's such an amazing thing that you do that, (laughs) but the application process feels purposefully not overly structured where it's literally just three essays. One of them is 1500 words. That's like, why you, (laughs) why now? And they don't guide you at all. And they just want you to be real with your personal narrative. Like, what is it about you that wants to go travel? We don't care about your GPA. We don't care about the projects you've worked upon. We wanna know your story, what interests you, and how this will influence you. And we're not gonna put more guidelines towards how you should do that. And then there are two smaller essays on, I think like what challenges have you faced and how does that relate, which is 500 words. And then another 500 word essay that I can't remember, but it's very similar to the challenge essay.
0: Okay. Um... And I'm sure there must be so much from your travels that we could potentially cover. But um, I wanted to focus in on something that we have in common, which is Indonesia. So you spent part of your time in Indonesia. And one of the essays that you wrote while you were out there um, was about a, so correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was a trek through Sumatra and you mentioned um seeing orangutans only a few meters from you. I was wondering if you could describe what it was like seeing those orangutans.
1: Hmm. What it was like was first thinking there is not the proper um, regulations and the safety in place for this. Because some of them are semi-rehabilitated, some of them aren't they'll give the orangutans food and then the orangutans will want more food and they don't have more food and they start looking at you and they just say, okay, time to run. Oh, like that's really, it's like funny until you're like, wow, that's actually, you know, really in the face of danger. And I think there were some scary stories of what happened in Indonesian Borneo a few months later. And I think that all got closed down. The experience though It's um, wild. It's amazing to be so close to something that is so similar in ways and mannerisms to you, but feels so different. I remember that there was a baby that was breastfeeding and just the way it breastfeed and the attachment it had at that age to its mother was just like, wow, you know, the similarities here are uncanny. And to experience that, but also then to see the way they're able to run through the force and the power and the grace they have. Um so it was kind of both eerie and concerning. Um and really glad that I had that experience. You'd
0: obviously been spending a lot of time in the outdoors contemplating your relationship with nature in the years running up to this this trip. Was there something about being in that environment which is a very different environment physically and in terms of the habitat that felt different or actually did it feel despite all those differences did it feel similar internally for you
1: Mm. there was a feeling when i got to the jungle of i've arrived i've wanted to see this kind of ecosystem for so long where most of it is primitive in the sense that it's native more so and that life grows in every corner and so i was kind of struck with enamorment for my first day or so and i remember i would kind of take a break and find a log to lay on so i can close my eyes and hear a bit more just all the life around me i still love that but i've also grown to see how physical and physiologically difficult It is for my Western body to be in a jungle or the Amazon, you know, whether it's one day I left the Ecuadorian Amazon with hundreds of red bumps on me and still some close to invincible insects embedded in the bumps or, you know, drinking the water after double filtration systems and still having stomach issues or being so drained of energy because I'm losing so much fluids. It's tough physically and I'm not going to pretend like it's all blissful. But there is this amazing thing when you do adapt and you're not kind of drained and bogged down by physical difficulties to realize to be that surrounded by life.
0: And I wondered if you could maybe talk about another story which really struck me from your writing, which was about a leopard that came through your Hmm. camp one night.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for reading that essay, too. That was back when I was first writing or trying to write more earnestly. Mm. So the first night I'm in, you know, that state half between sleep and half between wakefulness where, you know, you're there and you know, you're still, you know where you are, but like your mind is starting to drift off and the time is dark. I have no clue the time. I don't have a watch. My phone is buried away in my dry bag and it's just been dark for a while. And I'm about to doze off in my porter. So it's just me, a guide, and a porter. The guide spoke English. The porter didn't speak um, much English. And he runs in yelling, Leopard, Leopard. I'm like, what in the world is this guy saying? It's like, come on, like ushering me out. I don't even know if he knows to say let's go. And I get to, I don't even have time to put on my shoes. You know, I crawl on the rocks to the edge of the riverbank and about 20 meters to the other edge of the riverbank would be the distance. And there's just a leopard there, full looked full size, staring at us. And we're just sitting there staring at it. And I think at the other, um, at the campsite we're at, it was shared with other tourists, you know, and I think this is part of the funniness of the story. They came out, um, had their tour guide take a picture, got a little uninterested after a minute or two and went back to sleep. (laughs) I think that's a really good epitome for the way we relate to nature. Anyhow, uh, no judgments. I know that probably sounds very condescending. So we're sitting there staring at this leopard, me, Adi, who was my tour guide, the other tour guide in um, Ardo. So that's two tour guides, a porter and me. And we're just staring, and it's staring at us. And then it starts to move across the riverbank, not towards us, but um, parallel t- towards the riverbank, so parallel towards us. And then it starts, You can we shine our light on its eyes. Like, I guess at no point did we ever feel threatened. <laughs> and looking back, I was like, well, maybe the leopard was staring at us because it was sizing up if we were food or not. You know, like maybe I felt comfort because they were comfortable, but maybe that was like one of those orangutans. Tank situations where really we're all way too comfortable <laughs> and so we're shining the light at its eyes and its eyes i can still remember are this like luminescent gold and yellow and they're so eerie and they just are vibrant in darkness and then it starts climbing the bank behind it so farther away from us and to watch the way it moved you know i described the orangutans with power and grace you haven't seen full graceful power until you've seen a leopard leap through the jungle. Just so, it looks so effortless. The way it's able to just jump up on these ravines and climb up on these ledges. It was really remarkable. And I don't know, that was, you know, I've seen an ocelot before, but that was really my one big wildlife in nature sighting. And it happened the first night that I was ever in a jungle or really the first night ever being, in an ecosystem outside of North America, which is quite remarkable,
0: <laughs> yeah, that is pretty remarkable <laughs> um, one one of the other amazing observations that you make in that essay is about um, listening, so you talk about how when you were talking to your guides and your porters, you began to resist the instinct to focus on the way that their stories related to you and to share your own experiences. And in fact, you learn to go deeper in terms of asking them more questions. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that and maybe describe some of the questions that you began to learn to ask, because it's something that I feel I've worked on for this podcast as well, is trying not to focus too much on my own experiences but actually just trying to go deeper and further with the questions that I ask people
1: yeah certainly so I'm actually from my apartment looking at you know one of the old yoga studios I practiced at and that's where I was first basically called out for this where my teacher told me you know one day you're going to learn how to have conversations where you are so embedded and interested in what the other person is saying, that there's not even the concept or the thought of bringing it back to yourself. And at first that created like this big reaction and it created this big reaction because there was a lot of truth and reality to it. And I really took that to heart and took it with me and it hit me hardest and I really understood it I think it was the second night with them in the jungle where we would, because, you know, when you're in the jungle, unless you're going to sleep at when dark starts, which is like 637, you know, you talk with the other people. There's not much more to do. And I didn't do this fellowship. You know, part of it, I'm sure there was egoic or narcissistic tendencies, but it was really this earnest desire to learn more about different worldviews and ways of life. And so this was like really my first chance at that where I My first three weeks were in Bali and I didn't even know what I was getting into going there. And you know, then I went straight to Sumatra and living with these people for a few days who were born and raised in the jungle. And I was so excited to learn from them. And I noticed through speaking with them, we'd have this great conversation and I would bring it back to myself. And it felt like there was this lull, like there was kind of this improper interruption in whatever I was learning from them. And it kind of hit me in that moment exactly what my teacher was saying. You know, there's a point in time to relate things to yourself if you need to make things more relatable. But if you earnestly want to learn about someone else, then we need to be able to be aware of, of how often we're taking what they're saying and just contextualizing it within the scope of our life or rather if we're earnestly trying to learn about their perspective and what they're saying. And so I would notice that each time it felt like that I would be, Oh, that's so funny. You do that because in America there was kind of like this pause in conversation, something got interrupted. And the analogy I gave, it's kind of like reading a book where you're so into the plot and the next page is from a different novel entirely. It's this like an inappropriate interruption. And so Yeah, that's how I came to see it more so. And I think there's a lot of tips or practices and constructs that we can use to practice and embody that in our life. Do you want me to get into that?
0: Yeah, I'd be really interested in that, whether that's specific questions that you developed that helped you to delve further than you normally would into their stories, or whether it's other other kind of tactics or tips or tricks that can help us to can help people listening to this to think about the way that they listen to stories and engage in conversation
1: with people certainly so the first part the questions i'm hesitant to give you any specific questions because different every conversation's different and really what it requires is a precise and present listener to be able to absorb and digest what the other person is saying and understand what they want to learn or what the other person wants to share to ask the next proper question. And that will vary from time to time. And so I think that would go into my recommendations of, really, it starts with listening. Mm -hmm. Listening is the portal into learning of another person's world. It's this bridge where you can kind of get into their world, their experiences, their headspace. It's like a window into their experience and their worldview. And so I think it requires You know, this is what Martha, my old teacher, used to say. Listen intently instead of talk immensely, as I've been talking for the past 45 minutes. (laughs) Um, Listen intently instead of talk immensely. I think there's an aspect of listening where we usually, we listen to what somebody else says and then we get our response already decided. And that can be important at times. But when we do that and when we hold on too rigorously to what we want to say in response, we're not actually listening to the rest of the things that people are saying. We kind of shut down, picked off a part, and then decided, okay, I'm gonna to respond to this, and when they're done, I'll talk. So it's kind of, we aren't, there was an analogy someone gave me a month ago about this, saying like there's two types of people. People who let you talk and people who let you talk so they can say what they want to say. Something like that. I don't think I framed it perfectly. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, there's an aspect of, okay, this is a potential question I want to ask, and I like what they said, and I'm going to put, I'm going to make a mental note of that and trust that I will remember that if I need to ask that question, but now I'm going to re-engage with what the person is saying. So I think listening and listening to, you know, what the other person is saying instead of our own internal narratives and becoming more aware when we are being dictated by those internal narratives Leaving room for silence is really important and becoming comfortable in silence. Often we jump over every empty gap to get in our reaction or our responses where sometimes you'll notice there's more someone wants to say. And if you leave room for them to say that stuff, then more will come out. I think noticing when we react is really important. There are things, you know, when that yoga teacher said to me, "You need to listen to other people more i i 'm not sure what I responded to in that moment, but I know that still my primal reaction would be, "What do you mean? You don't think I listen, and that reaction comes from this like emotional wound or this wound in me that wants to be perceived in a different way, and when we respond from that reaction, the conversation goes in a totally different course instead of sitting with it in Oh you know this is you and we can see this in our lives like how often were we irritated with someone and then we yelled out of haste or all the impulse and then we looked back an hour or two later and then like man I really didn't have to yell in that way or I didn't have to react I could have responded in a different way and I'm I'm hurt that I might have caused hurt by doing that so I think it's really important to sit with if we have an emotional reaction and allow ourselves to respond or even express that and be vulnerable. And the last thing that's coming up too is noticing when things get overly transactional. And to give a good kind of analogy or an example of where this occurs in my life is some of the deepest and most authentic exchanges I've continually had are with You know, what we label as quote unquote service people, you know, whether I'm working in a cafe and it's a barista, whether I'm getting served at a restaurant, whether it was the parking guy this morning, actually, where I have no expectations, but I'm also not looking at them in the rigid box of what is the transaction? What can they do for me? And what do I need to give back to them? And then we move on with life as quickly as possible. I think when we look at life transaction, transactionally like that then our relationships become transactional and if our relationships and everything is a transaction of course but if it's a transaction to just you know give money to get food then we don't get whatever the rest of the depth of the conversation or the relationship could be
0: that the way that you've told that story and given those examples brings us back brings us round really nicely to something that I wanted to ask anyway, which is um, in what way does our relationship to the outdoors, to nature, does practising spending time in nature, perhaps in solitude and in silence, help us to develop that approach to our relationship to other people and that approach to conversation?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. And... <laughs> tough knowing that we're that we have an hour however long we'll go for because that can open up you know a whole can of worms that's a really great question I think it's invaluable I think that I have seen in my experience that nature asks us to listen and to be present with what's going on so you think of hiking or climbing or mountain biking the more rigorous at- activities and maybe the more high risk activities that we would do in nature If your attention deviates from your external environment, if you close down, you could say, the conversation that you're having with your external environment, if your mind wanders, if your mind is caught in internal narratives, those are usually the moments where you fall off your bike, where you slip off whatever it means to slip off climbing. I've never climbed before. Um, These activities demand our presence. They demand our attention if we want to do them safely, that is. And so I think nature teaches us the skill of presence to align our mental energy and attention to where and what our body is doing. I think that nature can grow to be the greatest mirror where so often, you know, we have so many things going on in life, whether it's, I won't even paint the examples of the things we have in life, but it's really easy to place culpability For our emotions, for our state of being, for our wellness on everything external and why it might be the external things. We don't often think, Oh, it's not the external things, but maybe it's how I'm relating. It's my perception to these external things. I think in nature, often there aren't escapes. There aren't distractions unless you're, you know, we're bringing our phones with us, but it's just you and the environment, especially if you're in silence and solitude. And so if you don't feel so good that day, you need to take full culpability for your emotions. Like, wow, you know, there's no boss here. That's yelling at me. There's no school pressure. That stuff only exists if I bring it with me mentally. So it, the more we spend time in it, I think the more we learn to take culpability for our state and to see sometimes problems are inherent to external things, but it's also how we relate to the external things. I think nature teaches us to be comfortable in the uncomfortable. I was just um, going to have a walk with a friend and she's like, you know, I don't even like being outside that much because I'll be honest, I like the outdoors. It's just all the bugs. And I was saying to her, you know, I don't enjoy the bugs that much either. (laughs) I enjoy, you know, the unquantifiable value and the critic, you know, how critical I appreciate how critical they are to my life But I'm sure my experience would be more enjoyable if, you know, when I'm walking outside, I'm not swatting away a mosquito. But I think that's part of it, where nature is not supposed to be, you know, perfectly comfortable and convenient. It's rather teaching us that we can escape all the inconveniences, all the discomforts, all the unpleasantries in life. There will always be those, no matter what technology we have, no matter how we've, quote unquote, mastered our life. And the real challenge, the real opportunity for growth is how do we learn to work with those, what we perceive as inconveniences, and still feel comfortable, still do what's needed, still have mental clarity. And I think insects, for me, that's part of it in my practice. You know, if I'm taking a nap or laying down on grass or doing yoga to notice, hey, I can't ever put up some force field to block all the insects from coming. And the more I try and swat or brush them off me, the more bothered I'm getting. And it's not to say, you know, just let insects crawl all over you. But I think there is a learning opportunity in finding comfort in what usually would make us uncomfortable.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. A a jungle experience. I don't love being covered in sweat bees, but I wouldn't wish them away from the world. (laughs) 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 Ditto. um have you got without naming names maybe from the workshops that you you run with people have you got an example of a time where you you've really recognized or noticed someone have that breakthrough or have that realization
1: in turn can you be more specific towards in terms
0: of yeah sorry that wasn't that wasn't super specific and have you have you noticed a moment when you You've particularly helped someone or someone has for themselves come to a a changed a realization that they can have a different or develop a different relationship with nature than maybe the one the, the one that they've had to date or maybe at least a different perspective. so you talked about your friend who said that she didn't like didn't like the bugs through your workshops have you taken anyone on a journey that's been particularly noticeable or marked? to yourself without you know without giving away anyone's personal details or or naming names but is there an example of how you've helped someone transition or go on that journey that you could share
1: yeah good question you know the last one was exposure therapy where we laid down and released you know a bunch of insects no totally not um totally kidding <laughs> i don't do <laughs> work like that um, one of the last times i taught an outdoor workshop because now it's really cold in Michigan and though I take my time outdoors it's not it's it's more difficult to be outside for prolonged periods of time especially not with movement one of the last workshops I taught outdoors I think it was late summer and one of my favorite um, like kind of the baseline of what I'd go back to if I only have an hour is guiding people to free stream journal and check in with their mind body and mood a short seated mindfulness practice and then allow them to wander nature as they were kind of a child with no destination to get to, with no goals, no right or wrongs rather to try and connect to their sensory experience. What is it they feel? Maybe they can feel their feet or their shoes against the grass. What is it they hear? Maybe they can hear the whooshing of wind or the birds, What is it they see? You know, how can they connect to their sensations through immersing in a natural world? I think this is quite similar to what is entering into, you know, popular lexicon now of forest bathing. Mm -hmm. And the last time a woman came back in tears and was telling me, I haven't felt that way since I was a child. I haven't experienced those things since it felt like I was a child again. And to me, that is like the greatest compliment that I could ever hear, allowing somebody in you know, the busy lives that we all live to have an hour break. And through connecting to the natural world, to feeling like a child again, to feeling this awe, this wonder, and this curiosity towards the world around us. And I only wonder if we can give more people those experiences, how that would change our perception and our will to sustain the natural world.
0: And it's one observation, it's incredible that, I mean, I don't know if that woman had been coming to your courses or your classes regularly, but it's incredible that that can be achieved in just an hour. It feels like, you know, it, 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 that experience took her right back to childhood, so it took her back to an experience that had been many, many years since she'd had it, and yet you achieved, you helped her to achieve that or she achieved that in a very, very small space of time.
1: Yeah, I think... That the natural world and these practices of mindfulness, which I consider under very common threads, which is another can of worms for another day, but that they always offer us the opportunity to have those experiences, to inhabit that childlike state And it really depends on the practice, but how engaged we are, how well, how much we're showing up and allowing these constructs to enter into us and to practice them. And I want to illuminate that with, you know, examples, because I think it sounds overly general. There's a difference between showing up into nature and taking a 30-minute walk after you are, and not to say you shouldn't, but just there's differences, after you know you had a very stressful day at work and where you're still mentally holding on to stuff and maybe the 30 minutes you're spending, you know, you have space in nature and you're spending that time ruminating and reflecting on things that went poorly at work or parsing through a relation with a coworker. And that lends a different experience to uh, maybe if we're showing up a little more grounded with you know things that weren't as stressful or maybe if we've had practice in letting those things go. And we're perceiving nature. We're sensing the birds. We're feeling the grass, and we become absorbed in it, and we become fully embedded in the world around us. There's those lead to obviously different experiences, and I think that goes back to what I was saying. With it, dep- the pro we come to see that problems are often the way we view them internal and what I was saying with, if we're bringing, are we bringing work with us outside? Are we bringing stress of relationship with us outside? And that's fine because I do that all the time too, especially if I'm working, but that leads to a different type of experience, different reactions, different perceptions of the natural world. If I'm ruminating for an hour, Versus if I realize I was ruminating for the first 20 minutes and over and over recognize that I've been ruminating and instead practice trying to return to what is actually going on around me instead of the stories my mind is telling. So I think that we all have mental stories. We all do have mental narratives. And I think whenever anyone were to practice this nature based practice, the majority of the time we're going to go into it with different stress Um, external responsibilities and things we're ruminating on. And that shouldn't be a barrier towards doing this practice. But I think the real power comes in, how able are we to recognize that we are engaged more with the narratives of our mind than the world around us? And how able are we to return to the world around us, to the stories of life, to what's objectively happening and not these impositions and dictations of the mind? So I think the more we're able to do that, the more those experiences are always available for us.
0: So, Scott, I've I've only got a few more minutes because I've got to hop on another call, but that's not uh that shouldn't be any measure of how interested I am in what you're saying. I think um, I think actually, this if if you've got the time next year at some point. Maybe we could make this a two-parter because I think there's probably a lot more ground we could cover. We've been going for an hour already, but it feels like we've only been going for about 10 minutes.
1: Um,
0: Just to wrap up this episode, I've got two questions. One is, uh, I suppose, very practical and one is a bit more, I suppose, personal or reflective. So first, the practical one, what daily practices or routines could people put in place to begin to experience some of what you've talked about and are there any specific resources perhaps books or articles they should go to to learn a bit more about some of what you've described
1: certainly so starting with practices i think the foundation is some self-awareness non-judgmental practice so some practice which is making you more introspective and self-aware though without judgments We often call that mindfulness or some form of seated meditation. Seated meditation is actually many different things. There are many, there's many different techniques which get thrown under that umbrella. I think just what's really important to start with is having some non judgmental self awareness practice. I would recommend, because it's what I practice, um, a mindfulness meditation practice where you, uh, mindfulness meditation of the breath where you observe the physical sensations of the breath, you notice you know, each time and all the time, the mind starts to intrude and you get lost in your mental narratives and just return over and over again to the feelings, the physical sensations you can feel of the breath and none of it with judgment. So each thought you notice, it's not good or bad, right or wrong. We're not trying to hold on to it or push it away. It just is what it is. It's a normal thought and part of the hundreds of thousands or millions of thoughts that we all have each day or however several many it is. So I think that is really important as a foundation. other things I do practices which are important. I often wander in the natural world. You know, I'll put my phone on airplane mode or leave it in my car. usually, I'm taking it with me now because i I write a lot when I'm um, walking and I keep my writing and my notes on my phone. but I would recommend walking in the natural world in an environment where there's less built world where there is less artificial noise and Allowing yourself to walk without destination, allowing yourself to stay long enough to get through the periods of like, what's the purpose of this? (laughs) What is this going to get me? Uh, What am I achieving here? Am I doing it right or wrong? That is all natural. And I'll go into that in another podcast. But allowing yourself to stay past those thoughts and trying to connect to your sensations. An earnest form of yoga um, that isn't overly westernized. I think is great. Even though I think any yoga is a gateway drug and that's another conversation maybe for another pot podcast. Um, and then practical recommendations in terms of books and resources. I think Thich Nhat Hanh, in terms of the mindfulness meditation stuff is one of the more brilliant, simple contemplative um, thinkers and writers out there. So good books to start with for him is the miracle of mindfulness where peace is every step, I believe that's the one for, hey, we all live busy lives. You might not have time for it. Here's where you can make time for it in your busy lives. Mm -hmm. Um, People usually like the book Wherever You Go, There You Are by Dr. John Kevinson. He is an MD and he kind of pioneered bringing mindfulness into Western clinical practice. Because she's what linked us and because I love her, I'm going to put a plug in for Claire Thompson Claire Thompson wrote a good book called Mindfulness in the Natural World. So that's more on expanding how mindfulness relates to nature and how we can use these practices. I haven't yet to find really the great book that links mindfulness in nature yet. Maybe because I need to write my own thoughts one day. Maybe it's just out there. Um, and so I'm not sure what that is. I think Jack Cornfield's also really good. Yeah, that's a lot of recommendations.
0: Um, penultimate question, which is the more reflective one. Is there an experience in the last 24 hours or maybe the last week, um, that you've had in nature that has made you feel calm or been particularly enjoyable that maybe you could just describe to encapsulate as an example, some of the things that you've talked about over the course of this conversation?
1: Certainly. So it's hard to get calm at first because it's like twenty degrees out in windy and, and in Celsius, right? Like minus five Celsius, because I am in Michigan. So I am outdoors every day. I was outdoors before this call, taking a similar walk. And it was, you know, very grounding and calming, but I had a moment, two moments, where I was walking by uh it looked like a preschool. And one, it was this like thing that almost brought me to tears to see the kids were being allowed to play outdoors and allowed to get themselves muddy and dirty. And I just had this thought like, that's the hope of the world right there. There's our hope is children who are able to both have the amazing benefits of you know Western education and technology and modernity but also who are allowed to play outside like children should. And that's also a brilliant book to recommend. Richard Louvre, The Last Child in the Woods, Mm -hmm. brilliant book. And so seeing that, I'm like, that's where a lot of the hope is. And it almost brought me to tears of thinking, what if our children were being raised more like that, where not only were they having the amazing benefits of modernity, but they were allowed to play outside and have their senses accentuate and connect to their imagination and time that's unstructured and not competitive. And Richard Louvre, Dr. Richard Lou did great. I think it's doctor. Anyhow, he did great, had great thoughts and great um, things to say about that. And last child in the woods. And then I had like one of my own personal moments realizing they were I'm not so good at wildlife naming. It was some big bird, maybe, oh man, I don't know. And I'm not gonna say what it was, but it was some form of more unique wildlife, which isn't often seen. And all the kids were clamoring and the teachers even stopped. And I was just kind of watching from a distance. This bird was perched on the corner of a roof. And it was one, just it felt in its own way, so like triumphant and so strong and bold it's one of those one of the big birds and i just watched it spread its wings like preparing to embark for flight and i had my own moment there of learning from nature because i'm soon to go to start working on my first piece of literature and i've been waiting to feel the confidence really to do that and i kind of had these moments really recently and so i'll be going to edit it more discerningly and more closely in a few weeks, actually, for a month. And that was kind of my own thoughts of I'm spreading my wings, you know, whatever that means that I'm going to, you know, fly to where I need to, and I'm doing the things that I now need to. And sure, you know, we can say that's a projection, but it just felt like this really, um, this really nice moment for me.
0: Thanks, Scott. Um, I I think we could definitely definitely go for much longer and have tons of material for another conversation but for the time being where can people find out more about you online
1: certainly so my website is scotthaber.com s-c-o-t-t-h-a-b as in boy e-r i'm sure you'll put that so i will you'll, you'll have the spelling in the show notes and then you can find me on instagram at Haber Scott so my last name reversed Facebook Scott Haber I'm in a bunch of other places with my writing but I've kind of put those all on my website if people want to branch out from there
0: great thanks is there anything else that you want to say or that you thought I'd ask about that
1: I didn't before we wrap up this recording nothing that wouldn't delay you for your next
0: call (laughs) I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in itunes or stitcher thanks very much and until next time